Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Here's God's word. It says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of um, Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also, verse 7, all, there, all, there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in particular. We pray that you would help us um, as as we gather around it, as we think about it this morning. Pray that you would plant it into our hearts and into our minds, um, and, and, and that in whatever ways we need to be encouraged or changed or grown, um, we pray that you would do that good work in us this morning. We thank you for your love through Christ, and it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. The, uh, the question that we're going to open our sermon this morning with is, um, is a simple one. It's probably one that you think about sometimes, time to time. The question is, um, do, do you want to do something that's eternally important? Do, do you want to make a difference in someone's life, a, a, a difference that will last for eternity? Um, because here's what we know. When God saves someone, take, take your own story, for instance. If, if you are saved this morning, if, if, if God has given you faith to believe the gospel, if he's given you a new heart, if he's brought you from being dead in your sins to alive in Christ, if, if Jesus Christ is your only hope, if Jesus Christ is your king, if, if you are saved this morning, then most likely... God used someone in your life, or maybe a few people. When God does that kind of work in someone, He almost always uses a a person that's close to them, or or a few people in their lives. Someone comes around and, and explains the Word of God to them. There are people in their life who explain the Word of God to them and then show them with the way that they live what it looks like to follow Jesus. There are people in your life who have done eternally important work. They've done something eternally significant with their words and with their lives. 
Um, as we look at the story of Ezra, and we're going to see his story unfold uh, in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and a little bit in Nehemiah, um, what we're going to see is that he absolutely was a person of eternal significance. He, he did eternally important work. That, that God accomplished um, everlasting good through Ezra. And our question this morning for us, my question for me, my question for you, do we want that? Do we want that? What does it mean for us to be important, to be significant, to to live a life worth living? I, I can't make you care about this, and I can't even make myself care about this. But if God in His mercy has caused us to care about this, then let's think about it together this morning. Let's look at these two parts to Ezra's story. And these, these ten verses, there's, there's a couple of different parts here that I want us to look at. We're going to look at these two parts of Ezra's story, and we're going to see what it takes to do something eternally important. First, Part one, first, he is the right person in the right place at the right time. Why does Ezra do something that's eternally important? Because he is the right person in the right place at the right time. Okay, so we have to set the scene here because um, uh, Old Testament history is written weirdly. It's not written the way we're, it's not written in ways that we're used to history being written. And so, um, so what has happened here is the, is the, uh, the, the narrator has jumped. The end of chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, well, wh- where did that leave us? That left us with the temple being rebuilt. And so if you go back, you know, hundreds of years, then, then you know that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they sinned against God. God had given them this great land. He had given them a king. He had given them prosperity. He had given them... He was, God had blessed the people, and then they sinned against Him. They sinned against God repeatedly. And God warned them. They shook their fists at His warnings. They shook their fists at His prophets. And so God said, fine. And He raised up their enemies against them. And their enemies came and took them, conquered them, and took them into captivity. But then God, in His kindness, had brought them back, right? And we've seen that. Chapters 1 through 6 have really been about God bringing the people back, getting them back to their homeland. They don't have a kingdom. They're a province. They don't have a king. They have, like, governors, but still, they're back in their homeland, and, and God has ensured that their temple has been rebuilt. So they're worshiping God um, in the temple, in their homeland. But now, we're jumping forward. So that's the end of chapter 6. We're jumping forward now. Chapter 7 starts about 58 years later. So we've, moved, we've jumped forward. All right. So this is like jumping from 1965 to 2023. All right? we're, it's, a lot has happened. It's 58 years have gone by, and basically we have the situation where people who were very, very young when we ended chapter 6 with the celebration, the temple is rebuilt, they're celebrating, they're, they're doing Passover, they're cel- they're, they're, it's glorious. They're, well, those people are now very old, and the people who were sort of middle-aged or old, they're, they're very dead. All right? So we have a, a new generation. The problem is... 
this new generation are not living according to the law of God. Ezra is going to come in, and chapter 7 through 10 is Ezra just, I mean, he, uh, there's a lot of confrontation. So if you're not big in confrontation, you might want to call in sick the next couple weeks at church, because Ezra is going to get in people's faces, and it's, it's going to be fun. But Ezra has this desire within him to go and to get the the law of God to be the law of the land once again. The people are, they're, they're not living according to the law of God. They're doing whatever they want to do. Their hearts are far from God. They're in serious danger of God punishing them once again, right? They, they don't realize it, but they're in serious danger again. They have the temple, but their hearts are, and their lives are not submitted to God. And so Ezra is going to come in, and he is going to, and he is going to, bring the law of God to the people. He's going to teach it to them, um, and he is going to work hard, very hard, to make sure that the law of God is the law of the land. The people are living according to the law of God. Now, for Ezra to do this, he absolutely has to be the right person in the right place at the right time. Just like any of us, Ezra can't decide when and where he is born. Right? So the things I'm going to rattle off right now, these are all things that God has given him. But if you think about it, Ezra is positioned by God. He is the, he is the right person, the right place at the right time. If, if you, even the, the first five verses, you have his family tree, verses 1 through 5, Ezra can, can hop on Ancestry.com, he can get out the birth certificates, he can get out the family albums, and he can trace his lineage back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. Ezra is legit. He is the real deal. And this was a huge deal to the people at Jerusalem. This would have been a mass. It's hard for us to understand how big a deal this was. But Ezra, because the thing is, Ezra is just kind of showing up. And I don't know about you, but we, we don't love it when people just show up and start telling us what to do. Maybe you love that. Maybe you love it. I hate it. The moment a stranger tells me what to do, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to see some credentials. You're going to have to show me your badge. I don't care about what you think. You know, like I just, uh, there's something in me that just is rankled by someone who I have no idea who they are or why they're important telling me what to do. I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of tempted just to do the opposite of whatever they say. Ezra shows up in Jerusalem and he is the direct descendant of the brother of Moses. He has, he has priestly royalty running through his veins. This would have been a massive deal to the people of Israel. Ezra has instant credibility. You cannot put a price tag on this. And why does he have instant credibility? Because the, the, the family God, allowed, God had him born into. Ezra walks in with a pedigree. And then, and then look at verse 6. He not only has this, this pedigree with the, with the people of Israel... But he also has something that, that because the, the, the king of Persia, the king of Persia who is, who is having Ezra go back um, to Jerusalem to do this, that king wouldn't have cared so much about Ezra's 
Israelite pedigree, his, his connection to Aaron. But, but Ezra says in verse 6, he was a scribe. He was a scribe. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. We have to break that into two different parts. First, we just have to understand that he was a scribe. And so, when we think of scribe, we think of like the New Testament definition of scribe, like the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, and, and so, but that, that's the, the kind of scribe that Ezra was, was he was actually a, uh, this is, a, this is a, a word for like an official secretary in the Persian government. This is a, this is a political word. This is kind of like um, this is kind of like what if you think of what Daniel was in in the in the Babylonian Empire. If you if you think about that, that's that's kind of what we have here. Ezra was a high-ranking official in the Persian government. Uh, most scholars think he was something like a um, like a Jewish representative, like a maybe like a Jewish diplomat. He he represented a, um, in a very official. Um, um, way he represented the Jewish people to the Persian government. He had a lot of clout um, in the Persian capital. And this is, a, and again, of course, in some ways, does Ezra work for that? Yes, he does. Yes, of course he does. But in other ways, we absolutely understand God has given this to him. God has placed him here. God has given him this relationship with the king where, where Ezra can say, hey, can I go and, and, and reestablish the law of God in this province? Oh, yeah, and can you give me lots of money to do this? And the king's like, yeah, that sounds good. They have a relationship. They have a relationship. The, uh, Ezra is respected even in the Persian government. And then he was skilled in the law of Moses. Which that idea of skilled, again, it, it's hard work, right? There's, a, there's an element of hard work to this, for sure. Like, like, Ezra is skilled in the law of Moses, which means he's sort of like, he's fluent in it. Which means that no matter what the situation is that, that arises, he, Ezra knows how to apply the, the, the word of God to that situation. It, it kind of just is one of those things where he is, he's always sort of, quoting maybe not the Bible, but like principles of the Bible. He's, he just kind of thinks that way. He's, he's skilled in it. He doesn't, sometimes he doesn't really have to think. It's instinctive. He knows the word inside and out. So part of that, of course, is he just works really hard. But then also we understand part of this is God gave him a really good brain. He had a skill for reading and comprehension and communication. Those of you who have to listen to me every week know that not everyone was born with those skills. <laughs> we're, we're, we're created differently, aren't we? we? Some of us are really good at those kinds of things and some of us are, are not. We're good at other things. Some of us are still looking for the thing we're good at. We're, it's a lifelong, it's a journey. God, what I'm trying to say is God put Ezra here. He made him who he was. He gave him his family tree. He gave him this position in the Persian government. Of course it has to do with, with how hard Ezra worked, but also it has to do with where God decided and when God decided Ezra would be born. God has him here. And Ezra gets this. I'm, I'm convinced that Ezra is the one recording um, this. 
And, and Ezra gets it, because in the end of verse 6, the king granted all that he asked, and we're going to see next week, it was a huge request. Ezra asked for a lot from the king. The king granted him all that he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so when Ezra and the people he took with him, when they go, verse 8, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for on the first day of the first month he began to go. So this is a four-month journey. First day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. He got there in four months. Why did he get there safe and sound? Why was it a good trip? Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra understands this. He gets it. God has, God has placed him in his moment in history. God is the one who ensured that the king granted all that he asked. God was the one who made sure that he got safely to Jerusalem. God has Ezra right where he wants him. Why do we say all this? Because it is vital that you... And, and right now, I don't mean like the collective you. I mean, I want you to think of yourself as an individual. You. God has placed you where you are. God has given you your family tree, such as it is. God has given you the strengths and the weaknesses that you have. God has given you your job. Your skills, your abilities, your, your limitations, your relationships. If you have found favor with other humans, God has given that to you. If, if, if there are, are there people in your life who are interested in what you have to say? Are there people in your life who are asking you? Are they like asking you for your opinion? They listen when you speak? God has given that to you. It's good to understand that everything you have has been given from God. Of course there are ways that you have worked hard for it, but you haven't generated anything. God gives us our lives. So right now, no, you're not, you're not Ezra. There are thousands of ways where you are different from Ezra. And like I've said a few times, very few of us are going to have biographies written about us. Very few of us are going to have just this wide scope of influence where, where, where a whole nation or thousands of people are, are greatly impacted by our work. Very small percentage of people throughout history can claim that. But, but what we have to understand is that God has indeed placed you where you are right now. The people who are in your life, God has put them there. The relationships you have, the, the relational collateral that you have. God has given that to you. So let's not worry about comparing our life to someone else's life or wishing that we had their talents or, or their influence. Instead, let's take a really good look at the life that God has given us. Now, I am not going to. I'm not even going to try to predict what fruit God might bring through your work. I'm not, I'm not what, what good, uh, what eternal good God might accomplish. I'm not going to. I, that, we, we, we let God have that. 
We let God have who we were born. Like I was just talking with someone this morning, and and we were talking about just the uh, just a very sad part in in human history, and both of us just agreed. I'm so glad I wasn't born then. I wasn't born into that, but I didn't choose it. I didn't choose to be born where I'm born. The family I was born into, the gifts and, and abilities and, and not so much the, the limitations that God is giving. I, I haven't chosen this. So my question is for myself, where has God placed me? What relationships, what opportunities has God given me? Where do I right now have opportunity to do something eternally important? Where do I have right now opportunity to strive for something that matters? And what does it look like for me right now to be faithful? And that brings us to our second part of our sermon. That, that question right there. Whoa, 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 right there. What, what, what does it look like to be faithful? Because what we have to understand is that there are ways in which Ezra has nothing in common with us. I mean, this story, it could be on a different planet, right? It's just so different from us. But then, we see in our second part of our sermon something that we all must have. So second, he set his heart to study, do, and teach God's word. He set his heart to study, do, and teach God's word. So if you're going to be a person of eternal significance, if you're going to do something eternally good with your life, Much of it has zero to do with you. You did not choose where you were born. You did not choose what the, op- the opportunities God has given you, the, the, the limitations, the giftings God has given you. And you also do not choose like, what fruit God is going to give from your faithfulness. You, we don't choose any of that. But we must be like Ezra. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, verse 10 says, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is something that any Christian can and must do. This is, this is a universal principle. Ezra set his heart to study and to do and to teach the word of God. So, so has God saved you? Have you, by God's grace, been born again to a living hope? Have you, by God's grace, believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is is Christ your Savior? Is He your King? Is His death the payment for the sins you have committed? Is His resurrection your only hope to be raised from the dead to live with God forever? If that is your story, then you can and you must study, do, and teach the Word of God. There is not another way to, to live an eternally good life. This is it. So let's take a moment and think about these. This should be fun. Not for me. And probably not for you. So no, it's not going to be fun. Do you study the Word of God? Do you study it? 
I'm not sure that we can even consistently care about doing something eternally important if we're not consistently studying the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the one thing that continues to bring us back to matters of eternity. The, the, the Word of God is, is what keeps us coming back to hell is eternal. Heaven is eternal. Our, our true hope is in eternity. Our true joy is in eternity. Our true home is in eternity. We can study the things of this world and we can become pretty good at perhaps improving our health or making more money or experiencing more pleasure. We, we can become an expert in the things of this world. We can gain the world, Jesus would say. But listen to 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And how do we know the will of God? It's in the Word of God. So if the love of the Father is in you, then set your heart to study the Word of God. And then, and then think about this with me, because it, it has to be directly connected to doing the Word of God. And that helps us to understand what kind of study we're talking about. So, so sometimes when we say, let's study the Word of God, we, 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 we get off into this weird, like, theoretical or, or just completely academic kind of um, looking for like little um, intellectual nuggets, looking for little trivial nuggets. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. And, and, and when, when Scripture says to study the Word of God, it means study with the intent of doing it. It means digging our, our, our heels in and, and, and trying to figure out uh, in our hearts, in our minds, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? What does it mean to love your wife the way Christ loves the church? What does it mean to build each other up? What does it mean to be a person of, of humility or, or, or a person of generosity? Or a person of prayer? When we're studying the Word of God, it's, it's not so much that we can kind of pass a test somewhere, although it is good to know, to, to intellectually know Scripture. You've got to, I mean, you have to know it. But when we're thinking about it, when we're studying it, when we're meditating on it, what we want is, is for it to, to, to change us. We want to think the way God would have us to think. We want to live the way God would have us to live. So we want to know His Word. So we have to be studying it. And studying it with, the, with an eye towards how can I do this? What does it mean to do the Word of God? And then, and then we must teach the Word of God. When is the last time you explained the Bible to someone? 
we're not all preachers or Sunday school teachers or community group leaders. We're not, that's not, we're not all that. Most of us aren't. We have different roles. We have different responsibilities. But we, please, please track with me on this. But we all have people in our lives who need the Bible explained to them. I love that you people love the Word of God. You have no idea. This is a, this is a hard sermon in some ways this morning. I'm not intimidated at all. Because I know you people want to hear the Word of God. I love that you love it. Let's not, those of us who love it, let's not be afraid to say it to other people. Because if you and I don't say the Bible to people, who is going to? Who's going to? So, so do we have people in our lives who need the Bible explained to them. Maybe it's an adult son or daughter or adult grandchild who, they, I mean, it's obvious. They, they should know better. They know, we know at one time they heard it, but they're, they're, they're living in ways that do not honor the Lord at all. They're, they're, they're making us doubt whether or not they're truly converted. They, they need to be reminded of what the Word of God says. Maybe you have a neighbor or a co-worker or extended family member or someone you go to school with or a friend. It's clear they don't get it. They don't, they don't understand what the gospel is all about. They have, they have misconceptions about the word of God. We have, we have children growing up in our homes. If, if you have a child growing up in your home, you need to teach them the word of God. They need you to do it. We're not going to farm that out. We are all to be teaching the Word of God to others. Now, I can't make you care about this. I can't make myself care about this. Caring about this is a work that God has to do in our hearts. Has He done that work? Do you care about doing something eternally important? Do you want the people in your life, to love and to worship God forever. To find their eternal joy and safety in Him. Many, many, many ways where God has not given us the life that He gave to Ezra. But He has called us to study and to do and to teach His Word. I will tell you, by God's grace, this is what I want. I, I, I want to, to live a life by God's grace that, that matters. I would be humbled and thrilled at the idea that God would use me. He would use my words and my life to, to change someone's Eternal destiny. I know Jesus is still doing it. He's still building his church. I would love if he would use me for that. But, but even though I care about it, even though it's what I want, moment of honesty here. I'm done preaching. I'm going to be honest. It's a joke. 
moment of honesty here. There are times I have failed to study the Word of God. There are times I have gotten up to teach or to preach and I relied on my just ability to figure it out when I got up there. The Word of God, the Word of God demands, deserves far more attention to detail than I gave it that week. There are times when I have preached the Word of God, but in my life was not obeying it. There have been times where I was faithful to study and to teach it to, to the church, but I failed to, to teach it to my children. I had opportunities to explain it to, to people in my personal life, and I slouched away rather than saying what needed to be said. Maybe I'm not the only one who has failed in these ways. What do we do when we do this? What do we do when we fail? Do we just kind of give up? Do we turn away? Do we say, well, I'm done. I'm no good at that. No, we don't turn away. We turn to Jesus. Jesus is the only person ever who perfectly studied the Word of God, who did the Word of God, and who taught the Word of God. And Jesus is always there. He is, can I just hear this? He is always there to forgive you. He is always there to give you strength to repent and to get going again. He is always there. And He wants you to do this. He wants you to study the Word. He wants you to do the Word. He wants you to teach the Word to other people. He wants you to. So He will help you. He will forgive you when you fail. He will give you strength to repent and to get back at it. He will help you. And if God in His mercy does something eternally important through our lives, no idea what that will look like, but if God does, we will stand one day before the throne and we will say it was 100% because of Jesus. Let's pray together.